Well, it's exciting to be back with you all this new year, praying that you guys had a great Christmas season, restful Christmas season. I know a lot of people travel around Christmas time, and apparently about 5 million people from our country visited the Grand Canyon this year. It's kind of a rotating stat because a lot of people visit the Grand Canyon. It's amazing how many people go there, but if you've ever been, you've probably been struck with the awe of how amazing it is and how big God and his creation is and how small you are. Five million people visited last year, and since they've been keeping records on these type of things, I know this might be a morbid thought, but since they've been keeping records, about 900 people have actually died in the Grand Canyon. Surely more than that, but um, since they've been keeping track in the late 1800s, that includes people who died of thirst and of heat and of things like that. 900 people. That averages out to be about 12 every year, even with all the modern things that are are accompanying the Grand Canyon. Because if you go, you'll notice that the places that are meant for tourists, you can tell are meant for tourists, and the places that are not, are not meant for tourists. They kind of funnel you to certain places, and there's a lot of signage, and there's a lot of safety things that they put there. But it's kind of like one of those things when you get up to the edge, I mean, walk at your own risk. I mean, if you want to be someone who's reckless and jumping all around and jumping off of the, the ledges and trying to play around the, the edge, that's kind of at your own risk. It's dangerous. 12 people every year perish because of the Grand Canyon. Actually, that's kind of a low number if you think about how dangerous it could be. 5 million people and only 12 every year perish. And I want you to imagine that instead of visiting, you're a person who regularly lived there. Maybe you were a tour guide. Maybe you were someone who was constantly walking those grounds. I wonder if you would have the same sense of awe and wonder and even fear of the edge, or, as is probably the case, would you become numb to it? Would you think, well, I know some people are in danger here, but not me. I'm here all the time. I think we get used to it when we start to realize the danger we're in. And it's actually very true for us as well when it comes to the human life. We are always on the edge of something. Every last one of us is on the edge of life and death every year. Every passing year could be your last year. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're not wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're healthy or it doesn't matter if you're sick. We all stand on the edge of eternity. But the problem is so many of us are used to it. We're used to that concept and it never strikes us with the fear that it should because we're used to the idea. Yeah, Everyone dies. I could die. This could be my last year. And sometimes we're a little bit too cavalier about that. Well, this morning, I want to give you four reminders from the oldest psalm in the Bible that's going to instruct us to live every year like it's our last and to live it for the Lord. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Psalm chapter 90. This is the oldest psalm, even though it's not the first here included. It's the oldest because Moses writes it. It's called the prayer of Moses. This whole psalm is going to be written from the perspective of Moses talking to God. That's why the word you shows up a lot. It's devotional. It's written to the Lord. You do things. It's a prayer. Moses, uh, the man of God, if you can think back to his life, his life experience actually brings a lot to this text that might inform us about it. One of the things that it should bring up to us is that Moses was a guy who trusted God from a young age, but his life was anything but settled. It was chaotic. He was a a baby born to these Israelite parents, and soon after he was born, sent down the Nile River, um, escaping death. And then you know the story, right? Pharaoh's daughter and her her servants pick this baby up. They think this is a good-looking baby. They can tell it's a Hebrew. And they say, okay, let's find a Hebrew to go nurse this baby uh, to to wean him up. And it just so happens in God's grace that they choose Moses' mother. And Moses' mother gets to raise Moses for a short amount of time. And then he goes back to the Egyptian side. He's raised with all the, the, the riches and all the education and all the things that you know, a guy like that, a prince of Egypt, would have. When he's about 40 years old, he killed an Egyptian trying to defend an Israelite. And because of that, he has to flee into the wilderness. He goes to the land of Midian. And for 40 years, he serves as a shepherd. That's where he gets married. He has two sons. And that happens until God calls him to lead his people. God meets him at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three and says, you're going to lead my people out. And you know, Moses, he was hesitant. He was tentative. He didn't really want to do that until God said, no, it's time to go. And he leads the people of Israel out. And the expectation, obviously, if you're Moses is, I'm going to take these people out of slavery and I'm going to take them to the land of promise that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But you know the story. That's not what happened. The people from early on, they rebelled and they said, we don't want to follow you. There was always a leadership struggle with Moses. 
And he gets to the end of his time in the wilderness, and I think he probably wrote this near the end of that time, after this entire generation of people. God said to them in Numbers 14, you will not enter the promised land. A million people went into the desert, and they all perished, all of them that were adults at that point. The kids were the ones that took the land, with a couple of exceptions. Moses had his friends die, his family die. Everyone seemed to be dying. He was in that stage of life. I don't know if you've been in a stage of life like that, where it feels like it's funeral after funeral, loved one after loved one. And he writes out of this pain, and look what he says in verse number one, Psalm 90, verse one. He speaks to God. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses did not have a home. He did not have a zip code. He was constantly moving around. Was he an Israelite? Was he an Egyptian? Was he a Midianite? Where do you send mail to Moses, right? Depends on when you catch him. Well, he says, I haven't had a home. I haven't had a hometown. I can't point to some quaint hometown and say, that's where I grew up. That's my hometown. Didn't have that. But God was his home. And he says, not just my home. He has been our dwelling place. All of God's people can say that God himself is our home throughout all generations. Verse number two, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses says, my home is better than their home. My home is more stable than their home. My home never has a slab leak. My home never goes up uh, and needs rent to be paid on it. My home never has that because my home is the Lord. There's never a problem. Not with him, at least. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's one of the most comforting ideas in all of scripture that God is the home for his people and God never changes. Malachi, God says, I never change. And that's a good thing for Jacob because you would be consumed if I changed, but I never change. Verse number three, Moses says, God, you return man to dust and you say, return, O children of man. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter three, verse 19, where God curses mankind. And what does he say to Adam? You were taken out of the dust and to dust you will return. Moses makes this theological statement and says, God is constantly sending people back to the dust, figuratively and literally. These people were buried in the wilderness. I want you to imagine a million people dying over the course of 40 years. That's 68 people every day on average. I know there was times when a lot of them were dying. There was times at the beginning, you know, at Mount Sinai, the Levites killed like 20,000 people and then Korah's rebellion and numbers later on. But there were different times where there was a lot of people dying. But towards the end, you can imagine that towards the end of the wilderness, that generation was dying off at a quicker pace. And it seemed like God was readying this next generation to take the reins. But Moses, as a part of this older generation, says, you return man to the dust. For a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it's passed, or as a watch in the night. And a watch in the night's three or four hours. Right? It's like, you know, to God, a thousand years is just a short amount of time. Peter quotes this in 2 Peter 3, where he says, a thousand years and a day to God, what's the difference? A thousand years is like a day. God's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient, not wishing that any perish, but that all would reach for repentance. That's what Peter says about it in the New Testament, but th think through that idea. You got a guy who's going through all these changes and people are dying and his friends are dying. And he says, but God doesn't change and God's years are, are eternal. He's my home no matter what. Verse number five gives some imagery that you saw this week actually. Verse number five says, God, you sweep them away as with the flood. And you see the leaves and the rocks and things that when it rains around here, right, every little you know, canal turns into a river, right? And all the streams and things actually finally have some water in them and all the gutters that you have. It's like, wow, there's rivers everywhere all over Southern California because it rained this week. What kind of a chance does a leaf or a twig or a branch stand to not get swept away by a flood? It's like, there's, it doesn't stand a chance. We all get swept away. And he says that out of a feeling, I think, of hurt and of pain of saying, wow, all of us, we're just getting knocked down one by one. It feels almost indiscriminate who's dying here left and right. Verse five, he says, they're like a dream. I don't know the last time you had a dream. I had a weird dream last night. And when I woke up, it was over. And that's the thing about dreams. You wake up and it's over. And for most of us, we forget most of our dreams because we never like tell them to somebody. You only really remember the dreams that you like write down or you tell someone about. Right? But if you don't write it down, you don't tell anybody about, it's gone. You wake up and it's, oh, what's the next thing I got to do? What's the thing I got to do? And then you're off on your day. He says, these people's lives are like a dream. And there's a day that they wake up. The dream is their human life, their 
real life in that analogy is when they wake up, so to speak, in eternity. He says they're like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and it withers. You've seen that. You've seen people who are healthy and strong. And those of us who are older here have seen people in their lives who are healthy and who are strong and look like the best and the brightest. And even they cannot escape aging and decay and even death. In the evening, it fades and withers. Moses makes a connection that we need to make. The world can say all that. The world can say, wow, people are getting taken out like a flood. Wow, everyone's dying. You don't need to know God to be able to say that, but you do need to know God to be able to say verse number seven. It says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. And by your wrath, we are dismayed. He's connecting the death of the Israelites and the death of his friends with the righteous and good and just wrath of God. He says it's because of that. He even alludes to that in Genesis 3.19 at the verse number three, where he said, return man to dust. But this is a more like personal application. We are dying because of our sin. And in his context, God makes that overtly clear. It's because of their grumbling that they're dying. But he says, your secret sins, or our secret sins, God has set before him. Look at the middle of verse eight. It says, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And that was graphically illustrated by what happened with the Israelites in the wilderness. You remember, what was the sin that they got in trouble for? What was the thing they did? Was it murder? Was it adultery? Was it something you know, big and brash like that? No, it was grumbling. That was the sin. And now grumbling is bad, but grumbling doesn't start out sounding so bad, does it? It starts out as a secret sin. It starts out as husband to wife, pillow talk. It starts out as coworker to coworker, kind of grumbling like, I don't know, I don't know why we are, are doing all this. Why, you know, Egypt was pretty good. You know the story? How many times they longed to go back to Egypt, right? To go back to slavery. One of the things that they said is because they had cucumbers in Egypt, right? Remember that? That's what the text literally says, right? I've never wanted to go back to a place that has cucumbers. I'll tell you that much, uh, <laughs> but they did. The first complaint, actually, this is interesting. In Exodus 14, the first thing that's complained about, they get to the edge of the Red Sea and they think they're going to die, obviously, as you and I would as well. The Egyptians are closing in and what they tell Moses is, are there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the wilderness? Is that why you brought us out just to kill all of us? Is that why? And you know, Moses' response is like, hey, we're gonna trust God. And what does God do? God brings them through the Red Sea. And the next chapter, chapter 15, is the Song of Moses. It's a song saying that God is a warrior. He triumphs over horse and rider and he throws them into the heart of the sea. He saves his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But before all that, they're doubting. And Moses says here, it's because of our sin, the secret sin that started in household to household. I mean, imagine what that grumbling was. All the text says is the people grumbled and that the leaders were grumbling, but you know that started out in the families. You know that started out um, around the water cooler, so to speak. You know that started out between friend and friend and, and questioning God's leadership through Moses. Moses says in verse number nine, check it out. It says, for all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Which, by the way, not much has changed there. The average lifespan in the U.S. last year, I think, was about 78. Right? So we're still kind of in that range. The worldwide average was 73 in 2022. 70 or 80, it's still common today. Their span is but toil and trouble. And they're soon gone and we fly away. Verse number 11 is where this all leads us to ask a question and Moses asks this question very poignantly here. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who stops? Who stops and thinks God is holy? I'm a sinner. And the things that I'm going through, there's a connection between the two of them. Who stops and considers of these Israelites, we're being put down person after person, Elder after elder, grandparent after grandparent, every generation, why are they getting put down? Well, because of God's anger. Who stops and considers that? These Israelites weren't that great at stopping and considering that. Moses seemed to be one of the few that did. And similarly, in our world today, hopefully, as a Christian, you're one who has stopped and considered God's wrath. I hope you're a person who stopped and at some point, at least for an extended period of time, considered how God's wrath is righteously played out in our world and will be to a completion at one point. Who stops and considers that? That leads us to a wise statement that he makes here. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. Right? That's the goal here. That's the main application of this entire psalm. Teach us to number our days. We want to be wise. We want to use our life wisely. But we're not going to do that unless we are thoughtful and intentional and purposeful. Verse 13. This is now a prayer, a plea that Moses makes on behalf of everybody, on behalf of the congregation. He says, return, O Lord. Felt like God was gone. Verse 3, it said that God is the one saying, return to dust. Now, in verse 13, Moses is saying to God, please return to us. Please be good to us. We saw your mighty hand at the Red Sea. We saw you give us water from the rock. God, return to us. Be good to us again. Verse number 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. It's like this wilderness has been one big long night that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. That's actually a very specific question. He's saying we have been tormented. We've had a really hard time for a certain number of years, 40 to count them up. God, can you be good to your people for another 40 years after this? I mean, we've experienced suffering. It's been hard. Can you be good to us? Can we see your steadfast love for 40 more years? Let's just start there. Verse number 16, that's why he immediately goes on to talk about the next generation. Verse 16 says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. It's about the next generation. It's about the Deuteronomy generation and the generation of the conquest, the people who went with Joshua into the promised land. That's where his focus goes. After Moses received, hey, a death sentence that you're not gonna go into the promised land, he's like, well, I still got time left and however long I have left, I wanna focus on training this next generation to serve God as well. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. It's a plea to say, God, I don't want it to be in vain. I don't want this to be a waste. I want you to use whatever I do to establish it. If the Lord does not build the house, those who build labor in vain. If the Lord doesn't watch over the house, people who watch, watch in vain. Psalm 127 says, yes, establish the work of our hands. That's what God's word says to us this morning. And I know Pastor Mike never would do that to you to make you read 17 verses all at one time. So I chose to do it today because I think this whole psalm is a good collection and a good way of saying, you know what? At the beginning of every year, it'd be wise for us to to pause, to take the next few minutes this morning and just to think of our end and to think, how does God want you to live? How does God want me to live this next year? Because the reality is there are people in our church right now sitting in these chairs at this service who at the beginning of next year will not be worshiping with us anymore in this church. They're gonna be worshiping the Lord before his throne on Sunday in a year. There are people in our church who were here a year ago who are not here right now in this building who are now serving God and worshiping him before his throne right now. And we think of those people, we remember them even this morning, but one thing I want you to do is realize, you know, that could be you, that could be me this next year. And if that is me, or if that is you this next year, how should we live on the edge of eternity? Four reminders. The first one, perhaps is the most encouraging from verse number one, it says that God is our dwelling place. First reminder that's gonna be giving us a lot of hope here is that I want you to remember, point number one, that God is your immovable home. I want you to remember that God is your immovable home. The thing that's hardest about home for us is when home breaks down, when home's not the same anymore when there's a slab leak and when things go wrong in the house and when we repair things and we work so hard and we put in all this effort and time and then everything breaks. Jesus says where moth and rust destroy, right? Where thieves break in and steal. We work on our homes. We want our homes to be as good as they can be, right? That's why you organize your home in a way that's best for you and your family. You want home to be a place of comfort. You want home to be a place of rest. You want home to be a place where you know, your anxieties of work and other things can kind of be left at the door and you can have some kind of rest. I wanna encourage you this morning that God is a similar home, not the same in the sense that he's changing. That's very different. He's a home where there is no thieves that break in and steal, that your joy cannot be stolen from your home in the Lord where he is the one where you're supposed to go to and I'm supposed to go to with my anxieties and he alleviates those. He's called a place of rest. Even the book of Hebrews says that Christ is our rest. It's a place where we can go to have security. And we're reading Psalm 90. The next Psalm, Psalm 91, talks about how God gives security to his people. Listen to this. This is Psalm 91, verse one. It says, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. I hope that's you. I hope that's me right there, right? I will say to the Lord, 
my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. God gives security. God gives a safe place with him and his safe place does not change and there's no lack because ultimately the thing about our homes that we dislike the most is not that there's problems. It's not that there's you know, literal physical problems with our homes and having to repaint things and having to fix things. That's not the thing that hurts us the most. The thing that hurts us the most is when the people that make home home are not there anymore. That's the change that hurts the most. God does not change. God does not fail. God does not falter. He doesn't change his mind and tell a person who is redeemed and who is forgiven. He doesn't say, no, now you're out. Those who he embraces, he embraces. And he does that forever. God doesn't move. God doesn't change. The psalmists say a lot about this. Psalm 27, David writes, he says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Right? Even if you're in a situation where your home life, like the word home does not sound comforting to you. The word home sounds like a war zone to you. This says, even if your father and mother forsake you, the Lord will take you in. Psalm 102, verses 24 to 27 say, my God, I say, Take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old, you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, and you'll change them off like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. That's the God that you can call home. If you know him through Christ, and what I mean by that is if your sins have been dealt with in Christ, you can say to God, you are my home. You are my refuge. Even if my home is changing, even if I have to keep you know, moving in and out of different situations, if God is your God, he is also your home. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in a way that we can't even miss. In John, in John chapter 14, uh, he says something that's even bigger than this. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's why in the next chapter he says, abide in me and I abide in you. There's a reciprocal nature of that relationship, right? You abide in Christ, he abides in you. Do you understand the privilege that the God of heaven, the God who made heaven and earth condescends to come live with us? That he lived, not just, you know, Jesus, but God the father, he makes it even clear. And then what's next? Well, you know John 14, 15, 16. What's it all about? It's about how Jesus is going to send God the Spirit. Now, the triune God lives with us. That doesn't even sound right, does it? It's like he belongs to the Most High, or he at least belongs in the tabernacle, or the most holy place, or the temple that Solomon built. But the New Testament makes it clear that now God calls his people the temple of God. That's why in the new world, there will be no temple because God dwells with man there. And that's ultimately what we look forward to. It says that God is your home right now. And that's the truth that you need to recognize. If you're a Christian, realize that God will not be your home one day. He's your home right now. But this world is not your home, right? We can get those two things confused. If we think that, okay, what that means is, you know, everything's fine here. The world is my home. That's wrong. Obviously we know that. But we're also not trying to say that one day God's not going to make you a new home as well. He's called your home now and he's gonna make you a new physical place to be. John 14, one to three says that actually. John 14, Jesus tells the people, after he says, I'm gonna leave you, he says, don't freak out. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, trust me on this. If I go away from you, don't you understand that if I leave you, the reason for that is I'm gonna make a place for you and I to dwell together? That's what he says in John 14, three. So he is making a place for us. That's why all the prophets and the psalmists all look forward to a place that they oftentimes call the kingdom where we'll dwell with God. Jesus is king. The author of Hebrews summarizes it like this. Hebrews eleven thirteen, talking about the patriarchs. It says, these all died in faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. They died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For the people who speak like this make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking from the land that which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have gone back. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. 
There are people right now in this room that God is not ashamed to be called your God because you are looking for him to be your home. You're looking for him to provide you a new world to live in. He's not ashamed to even be called your God. He's proud. There's another way of saying it. He's proud of you in that sense. That's kind of an odd way of putting it, but Jesus even talked about that. Right? The people who do not deny Jesus before men says, I'm not gonna deny you before the Father. I'm proud to be associated with you. The thought of Christians or God's people going through life without very much, but trusting in God and simply having the promise of God and that's it, that might be a scary thing, but I hope that you can commit this morning to think, even if all I have in this life is God and his promises, that that's enough. If all I have is a relationship with the Lord and a firm commitment to say, I trust what God promised and I know he's gonna see it through, that wherever you live or whatever your home situation is like, God will take care of you. Reminds me of the Pilgrim's Progress. There's a scene in the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and Hopeful are in Doubting Castle where giant despair takes them in there and he actually tries to get them to die. He tries to get them to kill themselves in despair. And Christian, after one point, the the climax of that whole story, he says, what a fool I've been, that I've been lying in this stinking dungeon while I may as well have walked out at liberty. I have a key in my bosom, the key called promise, the promises of God. says that I will, I'm persuaded, unlock any lock in Doubting Castle. And the next thing is Christian and hopeful in that story walk out. And what's the key to unlock giant despair, Doubting Castle, despair, all those things? It's the keys of God's promises. That's a good illustration of what it looks like for us to go through life, even if things are hard, and say, I have God's promises. I trust him. He's my home, no matter what happens here. That's the encouragement of Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. But then comes all the, the scary language about how we in our mortal lives are passing away like a flood, like grass that grows up and is torn down, like a dream when one awakes. All of that information is scary and should be sobering for us. That's the second reminder this morning. Remember, your mortal life is ending soon. That's point number two. Remember, your mortal life is ending soon. I said your mortal life, not your life, because Jesus made it clear that your eternal life, that is something that will never be taken from you if you're in Christ. That those of us who know Christ, that he is the resurrection and the life, he says, you will never perish. So I don't want you to get the wrong idea that says life is gonna end for you. Life will not end for you, but your mortal life will. Your body will break down. Your mortal life will end. I said that Numbers chapter 20, I think is a good way of, of looking at this psalm because it's very likely that Numbers 20 gave the inspiration for this psalm. Obviously, we don't know that for sure, but here's why I think that that's possibly the case. In Numbers 20, Miriam dies right at the beginning. So Miriam, that's the sister of Moses. She dies at the beginning of Numbers chapter 20, and it says the people mourn, as you would. One of the main matriarchs of that society dies. And the next thing that happens is people need water. So God tells them, okay, go strike this rock. And Moses and Aaron go. And Numbers chapter 20, verse 11 says, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. It's like, well, for what? Like he didn't, he didn't, do anything wrong, did he? Well, he struck him twice. Maybe people think he was angry or upset or didn't trust God. All that we have is what the text says that says they, they did not believe in him and uphold him as holy. And they get the death sentence. Their sister dies. And God says, now you're gonna die. The people drink, people move on. They go to Mount Hur. And God says to Aaron, all right, give your stuff, give all your priestly stuff, give it to your son, go on that mountain and you're gonna die. And in the span of Numbers chapter 20, you start out with Moses having both of his siblings and a promise to go into the land. And by the end of the chapter, both of his siblings are dead and he knows that he's gonna die in the wilderness. I think that could be the inspiration for a psalm like this. When death is in front of you everywhere, it does sober you up. And you know, most of our culture, it's, it's not everywhere. There's not graveyards in front of churches as much these days, right? Pastor Mike always talks about that. If there were graveyards in front of every church in America, we'd probably get more serious about death, right? But the legal codes, you know, don't vibe with that. So we don't do that. We just want more parking spaces, right? But sometimes death is put in people's faces. And I think it actually was this week. If you're a sports fan, uh, you saw that the whole sports world stopped 
because of the life of a 24-year-old guy on a football field. Damar Hamlin, I looked him up, he's just born like a couple months before me, right? We're right at the same you know, age group, same um, grade, went to school at the same time. I, obviously, I don't know him, but um, this guy, Damar Hamlin, safety for the Buffalo Bills, got hit in the wrong way, and his heart stopped in a sense. He went into cardiac arrest, and it looked like he died on the field. Right? They didn't know what was going to happen, and for days, they didn't know. Even now, it's unsure what's going to happen. He's awake in some sense now. He's at least writing things and sending out tweets, so it seems like he survived. But what was interesting about all that, I don't know if you kept up with the story, but what happened was the sports world stopped and they canceled the game. Like they, they canceled, they postponed it and then they, they canceled it. And what happened immediately in that moment was these teams, especially the Buffalo Bills, they got on their knees, got in a circle and they started praying. The most secular age that this country has ever seen where less people identify as religious, and all of a sudden at a football game, when they had just got done worshiping the football players, when death gets put in front of their face, everyone drops to their knees and they go to God because there's nowhere else to go. Then the next day on all these sports channels, people are talking about it and they're talking about thoughts and prayers and thoughts and prayers. And then one guy on ESPN, which by the way is a Disney channel, um, starts praying. That's unheard of. And then he he does because people don't know what to do. And frankly, it's not that people don't know what to do. Some people do know what to do because there's nowhere else to go. In times of tragedy, in times of national tragedy, everyone's attention comes back where it should be, to the Lord. Sometimes God uses those things to sober up the rest of us. And he certainly did that in the wilderness. And he uses this psalm and, and without tragedy, we can look back at a former tragedy, hopefully with no tragedy of our own, to remind us to stare death in the face and not think we're invincible. And remember, our life is ending soon. The question that's posed here in the text in verse 11 is a good question. Who considers the power of your wrath? Who considers it? Um, I want you to consider it. And if you're a Christian, you probably have already considered it. There was a time where you were convicted of your sin. You were struck down by the law, so to speak. You understood that you did not measure up to God's standard and you thought about God's wrath. And you said, I I cannot face God's wrath on my own. I need someone to stand in between. And you looked to Jesus at that point, right? You said, he's my hope. He's the one I trust in. But even if you are a Christian here today and that happened in the past, I I want us this morning just stop and consider God's wrath. God's wrath doesn't change even though it's satisfied on your behalf for your sin. It's still there. In fact, the sins that you commit and the sins that I commit, they still get God's wrath. It just gets it retroactively on Christ, right? He paid for it then. They're still put on him justly. God's wrath is still real even for our sin just because we don't have to face it head on in the same way, doesn't mean that we should forget about it. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will bring every secret deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. David says when he's confessing his sin in Psalm 51, David says in Psalm 51, three, for I know that my transgressions and my sins are ever before me and against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All of our sin is in God's face. And that's what Moses says. Their secret sin that started out as pillow talk, that started out as grumbling from coworker to coworker, from brother to brother, sister to sister, that got brought up in God's face and it led to their demise. Some sinners think that they're never gonna face God's wrath. Obviously, a lot of people in our world do. I hope you're not one of those. Even if you're not a Christian here today, I hope you understand God's wrath and the concept that God will justly pay for every sin. Psalm 10, 11 talks about what, people who don't consider God's wrath, it, it puts some words in their mouth. One of the things that it says these people do, these wicked people, it says, they say in their heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. And if you read Psalm 9 and 10, those two Psalms go together as an acrostic Psalm. But what they would do is they talk about how David has these enemies and people are pursuing them and trying to overtake David and his company. And it's very black and white, like the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, but he says, God's not gonna forget what they do. At the end of Psalm 10, he says, God will mark their transgressions and their mischief, right? All the even scheming and planning, God sees all of it. There's nothing that escapes his grasp. Even if I don't see all of his judgment worked out in this world, he knows, he gets it. Who stops and considers his wrath? Jesus tells us to do the same thing in Luke 12. Luke 12, four and five tell us to fear God, fear the one, not just the one who can kill the body, right? I guess there's some fear that's, appropriate to fear people who could you know, kill us, but don't just fear them. Fear the one who can send both body and soul to hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
If Jesus repeats it over and over again, he says, yes, fear, yes, fear, yes, fear. You and I need to fear. That text in Luke chapter 12, he talks about hell at the beginning, but then he tells a parable. I think it'd be helpful for us all to look at, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian this morning. Luke chapter 12, turn to Luke 12, verse 15. There's a discussion and a debate that's going on, and Jesus tries to settle it by giving an illustration and these people, their problem at the, at the point in time when he's speaking here is they were hyper-focused on their stuff. And, and they were having debates among themselves about um, dividing an inheritance, right? That's a very real thing, right? Still is today. Debates over the division of who's gonna get what. Jesus says, who may be a judge or arbiter over you guys, right? I'm not the attorney here. I'm not settling this for you. But he does say in verse 15, this is Luke 12, 15, And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I hope you believe that. I hope you don't just mentally ascend to that. But I hope that that truth goes into the way that you treat your money. Verse number 16 says, he told the parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, "I'll, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. My retirement's full. I have plenty. I have enough to where I could live past the life expectancy. I'm fine. Relax, relax. Well, this man says relax to himself, like many people in our culture do today. They try to tell themselves, relax, relax, relax. Everything's okay. Look what God says in verse 20. Fool. The man says relax, God says fool. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? I don't know, someone else. Ecclesiastes 5 says that, right? The goods laid up are given to somebody else. So so it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You could be a Christian this morning. You could know God. You could be a faithful Christian, yet you could still stumble in this area right here of just focusing so much on the next thing, so much on the retirement, so much on the kids' college, so much on that, that in the process, you could neglect thinking about what's most important. Now, of course, I'm not saying that those things I listed earlier are bad things to focus on at times. Obviously, they're good. Those are good stewardship principles. But so is this guy. This is a good thing he did, right? He tore down his barns. He built them. Those are good stewardship things. But God calls him a fool, not because he's rich. He calls him a fool because he was not rich towards God, because he was only concerned about his life here and now. Remember that your mortal life is ending soon. Hopefully that is a good reminder. The third reminder from our text is this, that we should number our days. What that's going to look like in point number three is this. Remember to take every opportunity to serve God. Remember to take every opportunity to serve God, to number your days, to think, okay, they're shorter than I thought they were. To say my life, you know, I thought I had a big life ahead of me, but I can look back and say, wow, how much of my life is already over? How much of it's already passed? The days that God gives you are numbered. Obviously, you don't know your future number of days. That's not what he's trying to say. He's not trying to say, okay, figure out how many days you have left, although that's not a bad exercise as well. But he's not trying to say, you got to figure out exactly how many, because you can't do that. What he is saying is, think in the past and think of the future and think, okay, I have a limited time. And God has actually given me those days. If you think about your days as a stewardship from God, that's helpful, right? We talk about that with you know, our money or our kids, right? We talk about our kids. They're a stewardship from God right? My kids are not my kids. They're God's kids that I'm supposed to raise for God, right? That's helpful. That gets the right perspective. My money, it's not my money. It's God's money that he's just given me a small portion of to steward in a way that's pleasing to him. Same thing's true with your time. Your time is not your time. Your time is actually God's time. Here's how I know that. Psalm 139, 16 says to God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them, right? Even prenatally, right? God knew all of your days. He knew what job you have. He knew who your spouse would be. He knew all your heartaches. He knew all your pain. He knew all your suffering. He knew all your victory. He knew all of your successes. He knew all of it before you were born. 
And most importantly, he knew all your days. And he gave you all those days. That's Psalm 139, 100 chapters before. Psalm 39, verse 4 says this. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. I'm, I'm just like running away. I'm like a stream that's getting taken away. I'm here today, I'm gone tomorrow. This is a helpful corrective for us. James 4 has that same corrective. Be careful about thinking that your life is gonna last forever and everything's gonna exactly go as you plan. James says, don't do that. He says, remember your life is a vapor. It could be here today, gone tomorrow. Say, if God wills, I'll do this or that. But don't you know, assume on God's kindness for your life. Numbering your days. If you actually do the math on the days of your life, they're, they're shorter than you might think. If you do the math on an 80-year life, 80 years of life is actually only 29,200 days. For some reason, that doesn't seem like that many, right? If you saved $1 every day, you would get less than $30,000, right? Couldn't even buy a truck. Maybe you could buy a cheap truck, but they're expensive now, right? 29,200 days to 80 years. What struck me as even more impressive is that actually only works out to be 4,160 weeks. 4,160 weeks. Do the weeks feel like they fly by, right? Week after week after week. They just roll on over week, week, week. Only 4,000. 4,000, not that many. Scariest one of all, in my opinion, is an 80-year life, a full life with birthdays and death days and all these things in between of highs and lows that would only work out to be 960 months. 960 months. My kids are one month and 13 months. And I feel like it's appropriate to talk about them in months, not years, because you know, it's like zero and one. That's not very exciting. It's not very descriptive. But you understand that if you just took stock of your life and counted up the number of months, you would actually probably be impressed on how few months you've been alive. Not that many months. 960 months, not even 1,000 months. In a 70 or 80 year life, people have done the math on this. I didn't do the math on these People smarter than I have done that, although it's not that hard to do the math on this, but um, it works out that in a 70 or 80 year life, we spend about 20 to 30 years sleeping. So scratch that off the list of time spent because you're not doing much of anything. Uh, so 20 to 30 years sleeping, let's say you live uh, 80 years and you sleep for 30 of them. You only live 50 year life. <laughs> Is that weird? Now take out all the work that you do, go into your workplace. That's about 20 years of your life, just at work. Now you're down to a 30-year life minus sleep and work. Is that crazy? That's amazing to me, a 30-year life. Modern studies have said that today, the average person, if they lived a full 80-year life, would spend about 17 and a half years just looking at a screen. 17 and a half years. I understand there's a lot of overlap between that and work. So we're not just going to add that to the, to the tally because now we'd only have like 12 years of our life left. I understand there's a lot of, um, you know, work screen overlap, 17 and a half years. There was a study done in the United Kingdom that said women on average spend eight years of their life simply shopping. <laughs> I don't know if that's higher in Orange County, maybe. Eight years, just shopping, that's it. Eight years is a long time. Five years of a life that's full is spent eating. Five years eating, sticking food in your face hole, right? I mean, it's just, <laughs> that's it. Five years. Three years are spent getting dressed, getting ready to go out for the day, which I think there's a, another man-woman disparity there. Maybe it's about six months for a man, about six years. <laughs> there's like a... It's like a 10 to 1 ratio. That's probably about right. I don't know. Maybe some of you guys take a long time to get ready. Maybe I'm, yeah, never mind. Uh, I was just in a wedding on Friday, right? Uh, and the girls spent all day getting ready, right? The guys, we got ready at different places. I got home at noon, took a shower, and was out the door by 1230. And I thought my wife would, would laugh at this. I, it took me 30 minutes to get ready for the wedding. It took them like eight hours. So there you go. <laughs> Three years getting dressed. Two years just doing laundry. Thought that was interesting. Speaking of clothing, two years doing laundry. Um, six months waiting at stoplights. And if you live in Ladera Ranch, that's about six years. It's like just Crown Valley, right? Every, every light. Oh, so Alicia. I mean, come on. RSM people, Foothill Ranch, I'm sorry. You're, 
More than six months for you guys. One I found most interesting, the last one, 79 days of your life are spent just brushing your teeth. That's it. If you're healthy, right? Maybe less. You don't brush for very long. 79 days of your life. To me, that was scary because I thought, man, I waste a lot of time. If it all adds up to that much, I mean, if it's just a couple minutes a day, that adds up. That's kind of discouraging. But on the other hand, can that be an encouragement to you? That if God does give you a, a, a normal, full life expectancy, you've got a lot of time to spend for God. If it all it takes is just, you know, a couple minutes every day to add up to 79 days, how much time can you give to the people in your small group to serve them? Because when we're in the moment, it doesn't feel like very much. Oh man, I can only give 30 minutes today. Oh, I can only give an hour to serve someone. Oh, I can only spend time encouraging and talking to this person. I only have 20 minutes. Okay, but if we're consistent and we're faithful in that, you see how all that adds up? None of that goes away. As Moses prays in verse 17, Lord, establish the work of our hands. God gives us a promise that he will establish the work of our hands. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, the labor we do for the Lord is not in vain. We can know for certainty, with even more certainty than Moses had, that the work we do for God's not in vain. How are we using that? I said this earlier, but I, I, I want you to picture and imagine that maybe this one, this year, 2023, is your last year. Let's say we don't have 20 more years or 30 more years or, you know, however many more years, but this is it. This is the last one. How are you going to use the short amount of time that you have left? That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Um, the foolish person is not someone who's doing wrong in that text, although that's foolish. The foolish person is the one who doesn't stop and consider what does God want me to do this year? We're just, the foolish person is like the rich fool in the parable that Jesus told, right? The person who didn't stop and consider eternity. The person who didn't live his life in a way that reflected that his ultimate priority was about eternity, not here. Too many of us, if we're honest, if our lives were dissected and put under the microscope of God's judgment, we found a lot of our cares, concerns, worries, and pressures are only here and now. Even if you're a person who has a lot of those, and I know many of you do, I want to encourage you to, to keep pointing your attention back to point number one, to God is your home. Second Peter 3, Peter says something similar. He says, if everything's going to pass away, after he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, unexpectedly. If that's going to happen, if that's real, and he's really coming back soon, what sort of people should we be like in lives of holiness and godliness? It's a good question for us. I don't want this to just be something you think about this morning. I want this to be something that you maybe spend some time, maybe with your spouse this afternoon, maybe on the car ride home, maybe in your small group this afternoon or this week at some point. I want you to start thinking and brainstorming. What are the opportunities that God has given me? Ephesians 2.10 says that God has good works that he has prepared beforehand that are made for you. And as you walk down the path, so to speak, of life, they're gonna show up and opportunities are gonna be there. And your role and my role is to take those opportunities, not to run from them like Jonah, but to say, I'm gonna take these opportunities. I want you to brainstorm the ones that you know. Because obviously, you don't know all the opportunities you're gonna have to serve God this year. I don't, you don't, we don't know all of them. But there are things right now within your small group, within your family or your extended family, where you could say, I could identify some right now. I challenge you and encourage you to do that today. After he prays and says, teach us to number our days, back in Psalm 90, he ends with pleading with God to show his steadfast love. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. The last reminder I want you to write down, point number four, is I want you to remember God will show you his steadfast love. Remember that God will show you his steadfast love. You're going to see it. Believe it. Moses prays for that. And he prayed with, again, like I said, less certainty than you and I can pray with. This next generation, he thought maybe they will turn out to be worse than their parents. Who knows what's going to happen? He prays for something specific in verse 15. I, I mentioned this earlier, but I want you to, to, to dive into this. Verse 15 says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Something interesting that I noticed studying this this week, I'd never um, seen it anywhere before, but He's asking for 40 more good years, right? We had 40 bad years, 
maybe at this point is only 25 or 27 or 30. But his point is like, we've seen bad years for Israel. Can you show us some good years? I don't think it's an accident that at the end of the book of Joshua, when the next generation goes into the promised land, God makes it very clear to us that there was peace and security all the days of the life of Joshua and of the elders that ruled with him. So even beyond his life, for a few more years, there was peace. You might be thinking, well, how long were they in the promised land? Was that just like a quick little couple years? I mean, he was 70 years old when he went in the promised land, right? He was an older person at that point. Well, the text tells us something in particular. It doesn't say how old he was when he went into the wilderness, but we think it's probably around 30 to 40, somewhere in that range. That means when he went into the promised land, he was around 70, 75 years old. He was one of the older Israelites at that point. The text tells us with specificity how old he was when he died. The text says in Joshua chapter 23 that Joshua died at a good old age, the age of 110 years old. I'm doing my math correct. If he was 70 when he went into the promised land, that meant 40 good years. God specifically did answer that request. He didn't have to do it that way, but I think it's a good lesson for you and I to say God does answer specific requests to see his steadfast love. Did Moses see it? No, he didn't see it in the same sense Joshua did, but that prayer was answered. Even if you're praying for God to show steadfast love in big ways, and you might think, man, I might not see all the, the answers to these prayers, don't let that stop you for praying for those things. Because God oftentimes does show his steadfast love like that. Joshua, at the end of his life, at that same chapter, Joshua 23, this is the, the time where he brought everyone together at the end of his life, and he said, hey, choose this day who you're gonna serve. Choose if you're gonna be a Deuteronomic Israelite and follow God's rule, or if you're gonna be a Canaanite pagan. Choose which one you're gonna be, right? But for me and my house, we're gonna serve God. Right before that, in verse 14, this is Joshua 23, 14, he says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That means I'm about to die. And you know, in your hearts and your souls, all of you, he says, there's not a single person listening to his voice right now who didn't know this for certain, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. As a Christian, can you affirm that that's true of God in your life too? Not one promise of God has failed. There's not been one thing that he has claimed in the scriptures that you can say, oh, well, God didn't do it that time. God, God did not keep his promises. God was unfaithful. You can't do it. I can't do it. There's not one of you who has gone to God in genuine confession and repentance who's been turned away because God makes a promise. He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's not one of you that God said, no, I will not give you wisdom. I know you're asking in faith without wavering. I will not give you wisdom. There's not one of you that can say that because God made a promise in James 1. He says, if anyone asks for wisdom, I'll give it to him generously without reproach insofar as he asks in faith without wavering, without doubting, but the one who doubts is like a person tossed by the waves of the sea. None of us can claim, yep, God failed on his promises. And that's Joshua's point. I want you to take that in and soak that in and think, you know what? God will show his steadfast love. If you start looking for the ways that God has showed his hesed or his steadfast love, his loyal love in your Christian life, you're gonna see it all the way along, even in the moment where you don't see God's steadfast love. And maybe you look at a trial or a problem and you think, man, why is this happening? And you have all these, even sometimes doubts about God's good intentions. Can you look back and say, I see how God showed his steadfast love. I was so blind at the time, I didn't see it, but now I can see it, right? And the wisdom that you can bring to a situation in hindsight. Pray for God to show his steadfast love even here and now in our generation. I can tell you with full certainty because Jesus says it, that to his servants, the people who serve him faithfully, the people who've repented their sins and trust in him, Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 25 of the talents, and he talks to the people who've done God's will. He says this in Matthew 25, 21, the master said to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You can claim that promise as well if you're in Christ. God will embrace you in your work, but that should motivate you all the more here and now to work for him because our days are numbered. I'm sorry you heard a really downcast sermon from the Grim Reaper this morning about death. 
You weren't expecting that. You thought, oh, it's a psalm. It's going to be nice. No. Um, pretty hard one. Because I'm talking about death, I looked up the Grim Reaper and the history of the Grim Reaper this week. I found it kind of interesting. There's a lot of different origin stories. There's like Greek mythology origin stories and, you know, Norse legend and things like that. But it doesn't seem like the Grim Reaper really picked up in Europe and that imagery didn't pick up until there was uh, the Black Death in, in the 1300s, right? All these people were dying of this sickness. And uh, as they were dying, there was some kind of longing to make a character that would humanize death like a person coming to get you, right? And there's a lot of Greek mythology on that, if you know that. Um, but this idea of a person with a black robe and a scythe, so it's not a sickle, by the way, it's a scythe, I guess there's a difference. Um, one of those is for like different kinds of chopping. But the scythe apparently is that big, you know, curved um, knife thing on a stick that you would swing through the fields. And what does it do, right? It cuts things down. It's like harvesting. The picture was, it's like this figure is coming to harvest souls. He's taking people to the place of the dead. And for some situations, that was like an encouragement. In the 1300s, it was like, yeah, no, God's gonna take care of these people. Their souls, they're not gonna stay here in this bad situation. God's gonna take them away. But what's interesting is the, the phrase grim reaper did not show up in English until 1847. There was a book that a Scottish pastor uh, translated from German. Uh, it was a much older book, but the book was entitled The Circle of Human Life. And, you know, if you look up the Grim Reaper, you'll see that, oh, the phrase comes from the circle of human life. And when I looked it up and I saw that, I thought, okay, that must just be like a philosophy book or, I don't know, maybe a biology book, The Circle of Human Life. That could be anything. Well, it wasn't that kind of book. In fact, in German, it was originally called The Hours of Christian Devotion. It was a prayer book. It was a devotional book, actually. And the first time it showed up was on page 11, which was at the, obviously, beginning of a book. And it was a devotional written for New Year's Day. So this was something that these people were, you know, supposed to devotionally read through at the beginning of every new year. And as I look on the page, I see the quote, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's where Grim Reaper shows up. But as I, I looked at the page in this book, I'm like, wait a minute. Um, what are they talking about here? On New Year's Day, this devotional was actually a commentary, a devotional commentary on Psalm 90. The first time the word Grim Reaper, the phrase Grim Reaper ever shows up in English, it was this Scottish pastor translating what this German pastor wrote about Psalm 90, verses 10 to 12. I thought the quote was so good, I wanted to read it to you. It says, uh, this was after the section on verses 10 to 12, which talk about how our days are numbered, uh, 70 or 80, who considers the power of God's wrath. After all that, here's what Dr. August Tholuck wrote. He says, there are many who suppose that a clear and certain foreknowledge of the day of our death would exert a powerful influence upon their mind. In this opinion, however, there's some deception. All know full well that life cannot last above 70 or at most 80 years. If we reach that term without meeting the grim reaper with his scythe, there or thereabout, meet him we surely shall. Death being thus the most certain of all certain events why not begin at once the work of preparation for it? First time Grim Reaper ever shows up was in a devotional commentary on Psalm chapter 90. I found that on accident. The Grim Reaper has made its way into our pop culture as a character who chases people down with that thing, you know, what, the scythe. Chases people down and it's trying to get people to die. Even in all the artistic depictions today and movies and things like that. Like the Grim Reaper is coming for you. The Grim Reaper is chasing you. Do you know that the Bible says that there's something that is chasing you? We talked in point number four about the steadfast love of God. Psalm 23 verse 6 says that God's hesed, loyal, steadfast love is chasing us down. David says there, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. It shall chase me all the days of my life. And future tense, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Even if you feel like the grim reaper is chasing you, understand that God's steadfast love is chasing you all the way. And even if this is the last year of your life, God will bring you safely home for those of us in Christ. Let's pray right now. God, we are in awe of eternity as we think about it this morning, as it's good to stop and pause and consider it at least once a year, but even more than that, I pray that Many of us would get serious in our thinking about how to make the most of our time for you in the short amount of time that you've given us. I pray that we'd be a wise church, that we would not be like the rich fool who considers only this life, but I pray that we would even with our time and 
energy and our effort and our, our money stewardship, that all of it, we would just say, we wanna be about serving you. We wanna care about eternity. Pray that that would be true of us. Pray that we'd not be like the rich fool, but we would be wise, that we'd number our days like Moses, and that we'd use whatever time you give us left to serve you. We trust that you will establish the work of our hands. We trust that because Jesus lives forever, that nothing we do for him is in vain. We pray that you would encourage us by this. You'd motivate us to live for you this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.